0: From Buffalo Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next? Producers' Picks. Highlights of conversations heard from and on previous shows. This week...
1: But in many ways, these book bans um, and even banning or making black history illegal uh, within school districts are just simply telling black people that our voices and our lives do not matter.
0: We hear from LeGarret King and Donovan James, speaking all things Black nerds. And we end the show with...
2: I don't care how much money you have, how many degrees you have. We are all a banana slip from being the people that we serve. So we really need to stay humble in that space um, and try to do the best we can with the gifts that God gave us.
0: Buffalo Black Achiever Honoree Melissa Archer. I'm Dallas Taylor. Thanks for listening. We start off with a conversation about black nerds with the Garrett King, who brings with him black history educator, researcher, and author of Beyond, February, Donovan James.
3: But for those folks who haven't heard of, of Black History Nerds Saturday School, tell us a bit about it. Um, is there a curriculum for it? Yeah, so um,
1: I'll give a little backstory um, for for a while Black History Nerds, um, but, but just um, Black History Nerds is a... Uh, a professional development um, sessions that happen every second um, Saturday of each month, um, and during Black History Month, we ha- we hold hold um, the sessions uh, every weekend. But during 2020, um, I received a, a DM from a a a a classmate um, who. Um, you know was following my career, and you know he just pointed out and said, Garrett, I know nothing <laughs> I know nothing about black history and this is a wow. black guy, right He's a black guy we wow. went to the same school he was a you know one one of our star athletes and went to a SEC school like I, I did and um, he's a pastor now um, and he just said, Garrett I, I know nothing." And I would love for you to um, tutor me right in black history. Right. Um, And during that time, you know, um, I was extremely busy with all different types of, you know, black history stuff. And I said, well, what can I do to help? him out as well as others because I understood that he wasn't the only person that, you know, just didn't know anything about black history. So that's where the idea came from, right? You know, um, I'm a black history nerd. Donovan's a black history nerd. I mean, anything dealing with black history, we we want to know more about and 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 learn deeply. Um, so I came up with the idea of said, hey, well, why don't we have these one hour sessions on Saturday mornings? We're just a bunch of nerds that wake up on Saturday mornings to learn about black history. And mm-hmm. um you know nothing, you, you know you you can grab your you know your breakfast or coffee or lunch or brunch or whatever the case may be, and we just sit down and we celebrate. You know, um, learning
3: about Black history. So what are, what are the types of topics that you get into? I mean, because you know, a lot of people will say, "Well, yeah, well, in school I learned about Benja- Benjamin Banneker, I learned about Frederick Douglass, I learned about Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement." But there's there's obviously so much. More to learn about Black history. So, what are the type of topics you get into?
1: Yeah, so we focus both on um, you know content as well as um, instructional methods, um, um, literacy. Um, so, our most recent one dealt with um, how to teach um, history through a Afro Indigenous perspective. Right. Um, we've had um, one this year that that looked at um, um, imprisonment. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the history of that and what um, people are doing now. We had um, you know, a session a few years ago teaching black history to white people by Dr. Leonard Moore, my um, you know, undergraduate um, history professor. And so we we've had uh, several different you know, topics that that we explore. And even when we uh, focus on content. Right. We try to take a different angle. You know, to that, because there's one thing about knowing about Dr. Martin Luther King, but really delving into his life is one thing about learning about Malcolm X, but really delving into his life. So um, in the future, we have, you know, this coalition of history teachers um, in K-12 education, uh, teacher educators who teach teachers, as well as history professors who come on um, to to uh, conduct these series.
3: Donovan, I wanted to bring you in. Yes. You are elementary school teacher.
4: Yes, I taught kindergarten.
3: You tried to you centered Black History into your everyday teaching. Yes, absolutely. T- talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah.
4: So something I noticed is that in the curriculum and especially the social studies standards, Black people were missing. Like you talk about Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, but what about the other black people that did things? So mm-hmm. um, I did my best to bring in, like, specifically picture books that center black history for my students to learn from um, and integrating black history into science and math and literacy as well.
3: And how do you how do you integrate it into science and math?
4: So, like, with science, looking at plants, so bring in George Washington Carver, I'm learning about living organisms like Ernest Everett Just, who was a biologist. Um, in math, looking at, like, mathematician of the day. So something as simple as that. Like, it doesn't have to be always so complex. So just really honoring black mathematicians.
3: And, Dr. King, you call yourself the head nerd in charge. <laughs> where do you get – where does um, that moniker come from? So it was a play
1: on um, Lean On Me, right? Uh, so if, um, you know, so some of the more seasoned um, – audience members out there ever seen Lean On Me you kind of mm-hmm. know know the <laughs> yep. phrase right some of the younger people are still like huh what's, what's going on and everything like that and um, you know Donovan and our associate uh uh, uh director Brittany Jones, she uh they all think I'm gonna mess up one day
0: and <laughs> say the wrong thing say the wrong... Yeah. <laughs> say the wrong <laughs> for being on me. So uh
1: but no, 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 it's 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 just celebrating, you know, learning learning, right? Um we don't have to learn for a purpose, but just for for just for our being and our humanity. And so as to her um the head nerd in charge our history nerd in charge right um you know I see that as a very important you know position for us to kind of push forth the learning of history
3: what else are you trying to accomplish within this space
1: wow so the center has so many things going um one of the things that I'm really' imp- um, really excited about it is our micro-credential that we are, um, you know, hopefully going to lo- launch in 2024 uh, for teachers, right? So there are several states, including New York State, that have what what I would call black history mandates in their laws, meaning that each school district is supposed to teach black history, whether it's a singular class, an elective, mm-hmm. um, or- you know, within every the- district within the state. Yes, 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 according to the Armistar law that uh, New York State passed, I want to say 1994 it or, or 2024 some, some some something around that line but um, but what the problem is a lot of teachers, um, lack either knowledge, or they're they're um, scared to teach Black history in a certain type of way, right? Um, so you know the micro-credential through the center is supposed to help those teachers kind of approach and broach those topics that may be deemed a little difficult uh, for them, as well as where to start. Because even your best history teachers have a large gap when it can cons- when when um, you know uh, concerning
3: Black history education. Why would? a teacher be scared to teach black history or, or teach black history in a certain way.
1: Yeah. So several different, um, um, you know, concepts a lot here. Right. Number one, um, there are some, you know, tough historical things that has happened to black folk, right. Throughout Uh, our history. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, some teachers are afraid to misspeak, on certain certain topics right so whether it's slavery or whether it's you know uh, a civil rights movement or whether it's just just anything concerning lynching or even just talking about you know persons such as malcolm x the black panthers etc etc um i think the biggest um and 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 then we're looking at history teachers that pride themselves in knowing history But when you kind of present things that they don't know, then they become a little shy and (laughs) and like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that I've been teaching history for 20 plus years. Right. Um, So there is a kind of disconnect between what society and teachers know about black people. And that's because we have a
3: poor black history education in this um, country. Donovan, do you want to. Jump in on that as well.
4: Yeah, um, I've been doing just some work with different districts and teachers just, agree- again, like LeGarrette said, afraid to say the wrong thing um, and don't want to inappropriately teach, you know, the enslavement of Africans and black people here in America. So they're just really, like, restricting themselves for, from diving in.
3: Is there is there a right way to teach black history and is there a wrong way to <laughs> teach black history?
1: That's an interesting question, and typically we don't deal with dichotomies in terms of right or wrong, but yeah, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's a no wrong way. <laughs> like, for example, right, there there has been instances uh, all over the country about teaching slavery through mock slave auctions, right? Right. Where, you know, hey, you know, there's a black kid, or there are kids in general who are playing slaves, the other people um, in, in the class are playing, quote-unquote, masters or whatever, and they're feeling and they're touching, and they're learning history in that particular way, right? There's been you know, places where kids picking cotton in mm-hmm. a cotton field and, you know, you know, slavery math problems that focus on violence and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. So, do you, so those, do you
3: object to that type of teaching?
1: Yes. 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 Because I think um, in, in many ways that brings additional harm. To, um, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, black students, right? You know, um, and you know what I'm saying to other students who um, look at this as you know something appropriate, right? Now the slavery math problems inherently are not you know wrong, but the way in which they constructed um, those math problems could be very um, problematic. Oh, so, oh, go ahead. Uh, um, I can do the, the proper way a little bit later if you have have, have the question. Oh no, go on. ahead, go ahead, please. So, um, when we're looking at the most appropriate way to teach black history, I think that requires kind of a rethinking of what history
3: is. Mm-hmm. I don't oh, is that is this the the teaching black history versus teaching traditional history? yeah, yeah, so 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 it's it's it's, it's this concept
1: where typically in our schools, and this has been researched ever since. Uh, the early twentieth century. So, um, um, you know, from scholars, um, you know, for so long ago that the history curriculum has always, our history text, textbooks have always featured a Eurocentric way of approaching and looking mm-hmm. at history right so you know even shoot up until 1976 you still had disparaging um comments about black people in textbooks you know saying that they were happy being slaves and they loved their slave masters etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's been in my lifetime right so so um you're looking at you know, a history curriculum that has really focused on white men who are heterosexual and who were land-owning, um, able-bodied, et cetera, et cetera. And many times, you know, black people's perspectives and other people's perspectives were not even um, thought about, like, mm-hmm. like, within that. So when we think about black history, black history is really unique because black history is, is essentially... Um, learning history from black people's perspectives, their voices and their epistemologies slash ways of knowing. Right. And that looks totally different from the
3: history curriculum in which we teach now. I wanted to get your thoughts on censorship bannings. (laughs) Where are we going as a country when, when, when we are deciding to do this and I, the collective we. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's really, um, you know, distraught when I think about it because, uh, first of all, you, you know, we had this manufactured crisis, right, that was not happening, you know, in many schools, probably in barely any schools in, you know, our country. But um, we do have a history of cultural wars, and cultural wars win elections, right? And, right? and And that has always, you know, happened since 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 the late 19th century. Um but in many ways, these book bans um, and even banning or making black history illegal uh, within school districts are just simply telling black people that our voices and our lives do not matter, right? Um, and you know, you know, the most interesting, you know concept is you know the fight against CRT but the most ironic aspect of CRT is that this is what CRT is for right right to examine you know all these kind of racist institutionalized systemic uh, practices to exclude you know black people and other people of color from from uh, the body politic right so so it's 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 a real interesting you know phrase because in many ways when we look at different book bands, a lot of these book bans just have black characters in it, right? Mm-hmm. Or or black authors, or black authors, right? With with limited, you know, um, you know, access to talking about quote unquote race and racism. Although you know some of them do, but you know, I believe that book um, that talked about black hair, you know, yeah. black girls' hair mm-hmm. was banned, and and. You're sitting there and you're like, okay, no one sees this, right? Mm-hmm. But but it gives—it it continues to impress upon black Americans that your ideas, mm-hmm. your knowledge, your perspectives are not wanted um, in different spaces around this country. Diamond, you want to add to that?
4: Yeah, so, I mean— I expected it to just be books that center just black historical events and people, but it is just kids being kids. Like there's a book called crown about a boy getting a black boy getting his hair cut at the barbershop that's banned, but we can't find like exempt, like why are these books being banned? So, um, as like Garrett said, it's just like black characters, um, being banned and just showing kids that even just you going to get your hair cut is a, uh, something to be banned. Yeah. How, how do we combat this?
3: How do we fight against this? It's not it's 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 got to be seems like it's got to be something we have to do every day. You know, um,
1: you know, in 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 a simple sense, we need politicians fighting against politicians. Um, I didn't I haven't really seen that from. You know, a particular party that begs black people to vote for them every single um, mm-hmm. yep. presidential you know, right. cycle. Um, I'm sure in local spaces that may happen or whatever, um, but but I just haven't seen it, right? Um, but what's most interesting is that we are only a few years removed um, from what people have called racial reckoning, right? Particularly in the summer of 2020. Um, and we had all these particular, you know, allies and co-conspirators. And as soon as all of these, you know, laws started to pop up and it just seems like those people disappeared and all the promises of 2020 just disappeared in a snap. Right. And that's very disheartening because the power is in the people. And I truly believe that the people that are fighting against this, um, or the minority. I think I read a you know article that in one school district, it's like one or two people who have all this power, have all this power that have banned all these particular books. And that's just not right. Right. Um, so if we had, and if I can be frank, if we had white people that cared enough to fight against these particular things, as black folk have been fighting against these, these spaces. But if we had those same people who did all this performative um, justice within the summer of 2020 mm-hmm. come out and fight this? Then I think things would be a little bit better. But it seems like just people just raised their hands and they
3: walked away. Yeah, it'd be nice if they uh, put back on the kente cloth that they borrowed and <laughs> came came back and and started fighting again. Um. So is this is this tied into critical race theory? Because it seems like. The hysteria over critical race theory has died down somewhat, but it's kind of morphed into this. Well, we don't want you to read these kind of books.
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, we we need scholars and uh, people and lawyers to continue to um, to, um, you know, examine what's going on through a CRT lens. Right. And just help people kind of understand. Uh, the language, uh, help them understand how the theory is used to explain different phenomenon um, and clarify a lot of different things, right? Because I don't um, think that people who have a, you know, agenda to mm-hmm. discredit something. where so, so I'll say this. I've been a professor for, oh, my goodness, like 12 years, right? I've been in education for 24 almost years, um, and... I've studied critical race theory in, in, in school as well as I've wrote a few articles um, focused on a CRT. And it's so much that I don't understand about CRT, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and I actually take the time to read the most important literature that is, you know, situated. And, you know, you know, CRT is still pretty relatively young in terms of education for us to really grasp all that other stuff. But to have people that haven't read as much as other scholars have have read to dictate what people believe, I think is really sickening, and we need to kind of reevaluate who we listen to and call, um, you know, experts on these particular issues. Mm. You feel the same way, Donovan?
4: Yeah, I think banning the books is really about control, but I say read them anyway, so. <laughs>
3: <laughs> can you can you give an example of trying to find that clarity to to clarify these things? Yeah, so I think um you know, particularly let's 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 say one of the
1: um you know, biggest principles of CRT is that race is permanent, right? Um, is something that's permanent in, in, in our society. And I think people um, they, uh, people who believe in the goodness of the United States or believe in the goodness of, of uh, people just simply don't want to believe that, you know, race, ra- racism as a system is still present in our society. CRT scholars um, try to highlight how racism is still, part of our society and how it restricts aspects of people of color right Mm -hmm. um and you know of course this can be you know with 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 the book banning can be a perfect uh, um, um um way to explain how you know, racism, particularly systemic racism, because if you are banning books within a system, a school mm-hmm. system, um, if you're telling teachers that they can't teach certain concepts around racism, a system, right, um, if, if if you have government agencies are, you know, saying it's against the law to have DEI, Offices and policies, you know, that's a system, right? Uh, I think it's really important for people to realize. Oh, so this is how, right? Because if the majority of uh, di officers or people of color, oh, now they don't have a job. Oh, who's gonna hurt? You know, mm-hmm, uh, right. if teachers are being punished for teaching about race and racism, typically it's the black teachers right, and now you know you have less black teachers in the classroom, so all these things are cycles that 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 systems play into um racial equality and if you get rid of those particular aspects then you know then then of course racism is permanent, and even in our gerrymandering right. Um, you know, you have places like Well, there's this case in Georgia right now. Yeah. Yeah, Georgia and and, but 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 even less let's take a um let's take Mississippi as an an example. Mississippi almost forty percent black Mm -hmm. if 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 not the majority population in the um state of Mississippi. And if ninety plus percent of black people vote blue, then at best Mississippi is supposed to be a purple state. Yeah. At best right right so we have to examine well what policies are making mississippi just a strictly red state right and typically we'll see the congressional areas um um drawn in there and et cetera et cetera right so all those things are important for us to understand and not
3: take for face value where do you see where do you see black culture heading not just hip hop culture but black culture generally speaking
4: I don't know. I see black culture just dominating, really. Like, I see a lot of blackness, and I surround myself with a lot of blackness, and I try to be as black as possible. <laughs> 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 so that blackness, that culture can be the dominant culture.
3: Do you, do you have an issue with other cultures adopting certain aspects of our culture?
4: Not necessarily an issue. I mean, I just give us our credit really mm. i mean if you give us our credit because we know what you're doing like right. yeah, <laughs> it's not like you're you. high, yeah we see <laughs> you so just give us our credit and, and be honest about that like you did not do that that was us
3: <laughs> <laughs> dr king how you feel
1: about it you know what's interesting um black folk are so uh you know creative um so when we see and resourceful yeah and very resourceful right you know um um, and, and and we have to let the kids do their thing, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you know even as I said, you know, oh, man, I don't understand it, it's not for me to understand. It's not, you know, um, as, as my parents didn't understand NWA and right. didn't understand, you know, A Tribe Called Quest or anything like that, you know, it's not for us to understand. Um, I think, you know what I'm saying, we're getting to some more futuristic stuff, I think,
3: you know, whatever that means, right? Um, yeah, there s- is an Afro futuristic movement. I don't understand it, but yeah. I'd like to understand it. Well,
1: you know what I'm saying? You got, you know, punk rockers and you got, you know, those who do art and you have people who are kind of reimagining um, the future for black folk. Right. I think when, when we think about black future and, and, and I'm thinking of this because that's our next conference, um, in 2024, um, black to the future. But when, when we think about, um, black futures, we have to think about, uh, people are saying, okay, so what would society look like if white folk just left us alone? Mm. What would society look like without racism, anti-blackness, um, sexism, et cetera, et cetera? And I think that's where like, a lot of our young people are kind of thinking now. There's the, There are some excellent people that are, that are doing some wonderful work, but... Really and truly, it's about reevaluating our past and seeing how we can push forward. Um, and yes, you know, what I'm saying we do have the you know the cool colors and you know the different you know wear and mm-hmm. you know, spaceships and all that other good stuff. But you know, really, it's just kind of reimagining what would society look like if racism and anti-blackness just stopped.
0: That was Thomas O'Neill White with Legarrett King and Donovan James. And we end the show with Jay Moran speaks with Buffalo Black Achiever honoree and Chief Operating Officer of the Buffalo Urban League, Melissa Archer. What
5: brought us to brought you to our attention is that you were one of the uh, Buffalo Black Achievers for uh, for 2023. Congratulations!
2: Thank you so much. Yes, I was shocked and very humbled, and and especially when we had the actual event. And I'm looking at the bios of all of my uh, co-winners, if you will, and um, I was like. I'm in the same league as these people. It's Oh, my goodness. So made a lot of friends, a lot of um, connections, partnerships, collaborations. It was a lot of card swapping that night. Um, it was a lot of fun. The event was really a lot of fun. And it was great to be amongst you know all of that talent and passion and hard work.
5: Yeah. Let, if you don't mind, let maybe explore that just a little bit. Like mm-hmm. you said, talent and passion, those are the two words mm-hmm. you used. Mm-hmm. So you, you saw that uh, among these people. There must have been a great energy in the air.
2: Oh it was it was a, it was electric yeah <laughs> yes and and I'm sure walking down the the um, the red carpet and then being interviewed probably had something to do with that <laughs> being in the VIP section, but it was really great to see um, you know fellow community across all sectors, but fellow community members that have been recognized for the hard work that they've been doing and they're not looking for the recognition, but to be recognized it just made you feel like extra special and and really um you know, really push that, you know, that drive to continue, you know, to continue to do the work because obviously this work is so important no matter what the work is. And to continue with that with more, you know, additional passion, additional, right. like, you know, I got to get this done. And so that was probably really exciting to, you know, just to be amongst all those those other people that are doing the same thing that you're doing, but just in a different manner.
5: Right. Did it, anybody catch you? I mean, not catch you off guard necessarily, but just the idea that, wow, you you do that, you do this. I mean, were there those types of people that that did that jump out and to your mind?
2: Um, there were there was a couple that, you know, I was like, I didn't even know this was a thing. Right. I didn't even know this was a service or something that was offered. And um and then definitely make sure I got their contact information <laughs> so we can explore and see how we can enhance our, you know, service provision over at the Urban League. So I was just like, oh, let me just see. You know, I'm always looking. What I thought was really a nice touch was they had sign language um, interpreters there. Ah. And at first I thought someone was just being very animated and talking because I was like, I, sometimes I talk with my hands. But I was like, that was that was very, um, very thoughtful. Right. And, I, and I really enjoyed that. So I was like, "This is this is a nice event all around. The food was great. The the program was great. Everything was wonderful." Yeah.
5: And what was it like when they notified you? Hey, you're you're one of the achievers this year
2: um I thought they sent it to the wrong person person (laughs) like, what what is this and I'm like why what have I done you know it's just been so busy like you know do I really qualify for this and um so that that's what went through my mind and then I went to um you know my team at the Buffalo League was just like oh my goodness look at this this is amazing and um was a little shy at first about it but very excited and very honored and, and humbled to even be in that space
5: and I definitely want to talk about your work at the Buffalo Urban League, but mm-hmm. I want to talk about your journey a little bit, because it's a it's a fascinating journey yeah. to this point. Because, you know, I I, I I would like to think that if someone said I was the chief operating officer of anything, probably mm-hmm. the, one of the first things, oh, you must be a, you must come from a business background, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right, am I right around? Right. Right. But your background isn't, well, first, it, mental health is a big part of who you are, yes. but- you started off as an RN.
2: Yes, yeah, started off as an RN, um, as a registered nurse, and then joined the military. I was in the army. it was an army national guard, and uh, was a nurse for a little bit. I like to say I'm 21, and <laughs> I've been a nurse for a few years. So. But I was a nurse for a few years, and just started seeing how um, how can we service patients a little bit better than just patching up, you know, the, the physical self. You know, how can we make sure social, emotionally, we're able to you know, provide more to them. So maybe they're not coming to the ER so frequently or maybe, you know, they, they have more empowerment and ownership and accountability for their own health care. And and just seeing the struggles and it's not just the patients though. I started seeing my coworkers. Really? And I was like, We we have to do something a little bit different. And I said, you know, how can I be part of the solution and not the problem? So initially, I was going to go to medical school hmm. and congrats to all doctors. I have all the respect, but eight years is a long time four years of med school and then four years of residency. And I already was in our, you know, registered nurse. And so I was like, oh, I didn't know we had two amazing programs here in Buffalo, you know, one at Duville and one at um, about UB for, you know, a psychiatric nurse practitioner program. So went to Duval and very, very, very excited. And I uh, was like, why didn't I do this sooner? Hmm. Um, but learned so much and um, and realized I was like, I am in the space I was supposed to be in. And, um, and so my, my thoughts are, how can I help people find the best versions of themselves, whatever that may be, and um, help them you know, have a little bit more control and empowerment and um, acknowledgement of their best self. And, and you know, because sometimes it's, it's not enough just to give somebody the tools. You have to teach them how to use it. Right. And then you have to provide that support just in case those tools break down. So I'm like, you know, I just want to be in that space to help as much as I can and however the greatest capacity that I could. So that's why I went back to school. You know, and when you're grown, grown, going back to school is very different than when you're 19 and 20, yes, 21 years old. Um, so, you know, that was a bit of a challenge. And then um, my last semester, I um, was called upon with the Urban League to help run this program called New York Project Hope. And initially was just going to I'll be a part-time crisis counselor. And I, you know, I did help with like getting resumes and just people that I knew in the community that I knew would be a great fit for certain positions. And then they came back and said, No, we want you to run the program. Mm. I was like, um, I'm in school <laughs> last semester. I gotta finish. There's a lot of time and energy, tear, sweat, and money put into this program. I have to finish it. Um, but I jumped in. Um, they worked with my schedule and and I haven't looked back. And uh, I just, I just have. I mean, I'm very. Um, you know, believe in God and very faith based, and I do believe that, you know, if you we just sit still and be quiet at times. Uh, God will tell you the path you're supposed to go on and where you're supposed to be, and you know, for me to get go, you know, pull up and go back to school and do all these different things, there was a there was a something was pushing me, and I didn't quite know what, but I knew something was, and I trusted that voice, and um, and the Urban League was just part of that. And the work that we did with New Year Project Hope was just something that was just out of this world because um, we were responding. And what the program was, it was a FEMA-funded program that to provide emotional support, helpline, resources, coping strategies um, for, for this particular one, for New York residents um, that have experienced, you know, a mental health fallout because of COVID and who didn't. Right. The isolation and the loss, right. whether it was the loss of a job, a loved one, whatever, and, and so many other things. And so, you know, our team provided that. The Buffalo Urban League team, we provided that. It was like a team of 21 folks um, that were trained um, by Office of Mental Health and SAMHSA. And they were paraprofessionals. Some, some were board certified or, or social workers, but these are community members, trusted community members that people know that were heavily trained to be crisis counselors, and we responded. And, um, and you know, I believe in don't we shouldn't tell ourselves how well we're doing. You let other people evaluate and, you know, basically do a performance evaluation of how you're doing. And the response we got from the community of the services we were providing was absolutely just mind boggling. It was mm-hmm. amazing. From, and we, we did so much, you know. Um, and so that, you know, we were in the midst of that with COVID and then we had some other tragic Um, events that happened that we responded to, first responders. um, And, you know, it just continued on until, you know, FEMA decided or had declared that COVID was no longer in this crisis mode as of December of last year. So the New York Project HOPE program was ended. But um, we were told that it was the first FEMA program to be continued in the post-crisis phase. Wow. So Office of Mental Health picked it up, and now it's called Buffalo HOPE. And they're still doing the same thing, providing... Emotional support, helpline, resources. I'm, you know, in schools with seniors doing, like, you know, um, mental health wellness events. Uh, I mean, it, it just, it's just, it's so much. And I'm just so honored to be, to, you know, when we worked together, we were a team. We supported each other. We, um, very creative. And it's just, it's just, to be a part of something like this is just like a dream come true. So to me, it's really my ministry.
5: We're talking with uh, Melissa Archer this morning. She is the uh, chief operating officer uh, for the Buffalo Urban League. And she, as you, she just outlined for us, uh, quite the <laughs> experience for a, a young individual to to talk about here. I want to jump back because mm-hmm. you intrigued me about a couple of things about your RN experience. Okay, yes. And one is what you saw, like you said, in your colleagues mm-hmm. and how <laughs> that process, that grind, whatever you want to call it, of right. of having to deal with multiple patients who are in a variety of different levels mm-hmm. of need, mm-hmm. um, how I could wear on them. Can you talk about that a little bit, what you saw?
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. So it, surprisingly, my, my thesis for um, when I got my master's uh, in the psych and P was compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And I remember my um, chair, she said, you didn't think, you didn't realize when you started this process that this um thesis topic would be so pertinent. And I just saw like people, you know, the especially during COVID, the fallout from just people just being exhausted, um tired, you know, sometimes understaffed, sometimes under, you know, feeling underappreciated and they were just tired. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, things come out. You know, that people have to find a way to cope and it was getting very difficult cuz you know, a lot of us nurses and anybody in healthcare nurses you're you're the social worker you're the you know you're doing a lot of different things but how do you do that when you know you're struggling to even just get out of bed and so when i saw this and it would affect you know their their work performance it would affect patient outcomes it would affect so many different things it's like we have to do something a little bit different so that's why i am a staunch supporter for staff Hmm. And porn So when and you've heard like have,
5: these you know, uh, Different nurses And some of their unions I'm not necessarily getting into a union thing here But when they were saying we need staffing levels You, you understood that
2: Oh absolutely yeah. <laughs> I've been in spaces where it's like you're the, you know, you're the nurse and you may have like 12 patients And they're really acute They're really sick mm-hmm. And you're like oh okay And you do the best you can right. Because you're in it And you want to provide the best that you can But you know there's also a, a human being At the end of that though you know, at the end of that shift that has to go home and and deal with their families and, you know, how physically draining, yes, it's always going to be, but the mental and emotional toll after a while, you know, we really have to to look at that and evaluate that so we can make sure we're pouring into our staff, no matter what sector you're working in, you're pouring into your staff so they can really pour into, um, you know, into the, I don't know if it's a, the, the patients, the clients or the product that you're trying to create that's going to be utilized by a human being, you know. So, um, you know, in business terms, you know, what is the return on investment? Right, right, right. Very <laughs> so good. you invest and you, you know, you get you get great dividends on the end of it. So um, it's just, you know, it's really, has pushed me to really like look at how you engage your um, employees. And, you know, like at the Urban League, we just did a, an engagement survey, and, you know, we're going through a strategic planning and a lot of focus on how can we enhance our employees' experience and, you know, trying to, you know, be there for them so they can be the best version of themselves so that they can provide that to the community. Because you can't give from an empty cup. And I know that sounds cliche, but it is so true. Sure.
5: You know? And you're well, maybe a little distant from the RN life now, after all of your experience, but I'm mm-hmm. sure you probably still have uh, old friends and colleagues that are still involved uh, is oh, it getting yeah. is it getting better do you think
2: mm, i think it's a probably about the same mm. because i think a lot of folks have left healthcare because of COVID. some That's people true. have there's a you know um some people go for different careers like i did left iron and become a nurse practitioner or people have retired so it's a rich opportunity for you know um other people to come in and, and study and become you know you know, become an RN, become an LPN, become a CNA, respiratory therapist, whatever the case may be, just, you know, getting in there. But um, it seems like, I I mean, I haven't really talked to too many, um, but I haven't heard anything either way. So.
5: Okay. And the other part of that equation, that experience that you had that struck me, Mm -hmm. my parents uh, were going through their later lives just a few years ago and Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in emergency rooms and saw how that works and how difficult that, that scene is. And you were talking about how, you know, trying to give people some tools, the the patient's tools that are coming in there and maybe using the emergency room because they have nowhere else to go. Share with us just a little bit how that, what you saw from these individuals, because like I said, I, I mean, I saw, you know, some, you know, sad, lonely people uh, for my oh, yeah. own, you know, my little distance right. and my little curtain there with my, my right. mother or father. Right. Um, what, what did you see?
2: Well, sometimes you see folks that are, um, that, like you said, the sad, lonely, or they're reaching out, or, you know, they're coming in for anxiety. Is hmm. it really because of anxiety or uh, there's something else going on and it's not being treated or not being addressed or they are lonely? Or you know it' it's you know it's so it's so individualized and so um, you know something where you really have to you know assess the patient, see what's going on, and then try to build some wraparound services around them. And if that's their only touch point because I know sometimes people do use the ER as you know their primary care or or um, they come in as a, a you know just a function of I'm um, having some symptoms. If that's a touch point, that would be a great place to just provide whatever tools you can. Whatever touch point you can have with them, Um, you know, provide whatever tools you can to them. And that's, and that I know it's a very, you know, defined time. Sure. And you're there for a very specific reason. But, um, but I know sometimes the ERs are packed. Right. And, you know, it's just, I think that's just the life of healthcare right now.
5: Right. I want to jump back because Mm -hmm. you intrigued me about a couple of things about your RN experience. Okay. And one is, what you saw, like you said, in your colleagues mm-hmm. and how that process, that grind, whatever you want to call it, of, right. of having to deal with multiple patients who are in a variety of different levels mm-hmm. of need, um, how I could wear on them. Can you talk about that a little bit, what you saw?
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. So it, surprisingly, my, my thesis for um, when I got my master's uh, in the psych and was compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And I remember my um, chair, she said, you didn't think you didn't realize when you started this process that this um, thesis topic would be so pertinent. And I just saw like people, you know, especially during COVID, the fallout from just people just being exhausted, um, tired, you know, sometimes understaffed, sometimes under, you know, feeling underappreciated. And they were just tired Mm -hmm. and so you know things come out you know that people have to find a way to cope and it was getting very difficult cuz you know, a lot of us nurses and anybody in healthcare nurses you're you're the social worker you're the you know you're doing a lot of different things but how do you do that when you know you're struggling to even just get out of bed and so when i saw this and it would affect You know their their work performance. It would affect patient outcomes. It would affect so many different things. It's like we have to do something a little bit different. So that's why I am a staunch supporter for staff Hmm. and so when you've heard like these,
5: you know, uh, different nurses and some of their unions. Not necessarily getting into a union thing here, but when they were saying we need staffing levels. You you understood that.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in spaces where it's like you're the one you know, you're the nurse and you may have like twelve patients and they're really acute. They're really sick. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Oh, okay and you do the best you can right. because you're in it and you wanna provide the best that you can but you know, there's also a, a human being at the end of that though. You know, at the end of that shift that has to go home and, and deal with their families and you know, how physically draining, yes, it's always going to be, but the mental and emotional toll after a while, you know, we really have to um, really have to look at that and evaluate that so we can make sure we're pouring into our staff, no matter what sector you're working in. You're pouring into your staff so they can really pour into, um, you know, into the I don't know if it's a, the the patients the clients or the product that you're trying to create that's going to be utilized by a human being, you know. So, um, you know, in business terms, you know, what is the return on investment? Right, right, right. Very <laughs> so good. you invest and you you know you get you get great dividends on the end of it. So, um, it's just you know it's really has pushed me to really like look at how you engage your um, employees and you know like at the Urban League, we just did a an engagement survey, and, you know, we're going through a strategic planning and a lot of focus on how can we enhance our employees' experience and, you know, trying to, you know, be there for them so they can be the best version of themselves so that they can provide that to the community. Because you can't give from an empty cup. And I know that sounds cliche, but it is so true. Sure. You know,
5: And you're well, maybe a little distant from the RN life now after all of your experience, but mm-hmm. I'm sure you probably still have uh, old friends and colleagues that are still involved—is uh, oh, it getting—is yeah. it getting better? Do you think? Mm,
2: I think it's a probably about the same mm. because I think a lot of folks have left healthcare because of COVID. Some That's people true. have. There's a, you know, um, some people go for different careers, like I did, left iron to become a nurse practitioner, or people have retired. So it's a rich opportunity for you know um, other people to come in and and study and become you know you know, become an RN, become an LPN, become a CNA, respiratory therapist, whatever the case may be, just, you know, getting in there. But, um, it seems like, I don't, I mean, I haven't really talked to too many, um, but I haven't heard anything either way. So.
5: Okay. And the other part of that equation, that experience that you had that struck me, Mm -hmm. my parents uh, were going through their later lives just a few years ago and Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in emergency rooms and Mm -hmm. saw how that works and how difficult that, that scene is. And yeah. you were talking about how, you know, trying to give people some tools, the, the patient's tools right. that are coming in there and maybe using the emergency room because they have nowhere else to go. Share with us just a little bit how that, what you saw from these individuals, because like I said, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I saw, you know, some, you know, sad, lonely people uh, for my yeah. own, you know, my little distance right. and my little curtain there with my, my right. mother or father, right. um, what, what did you see?
2: Well, sometimes you see folks that are, um, that, like you said, they sad, lonely, or they're reaching out or, you know, they're coming in for anxiety. Is hmm. it really because of anxiety or uh, there's something else going on and it's not being treated or not being addressed or they are lonely? Or you know it's it's you know it's so it's so individualized and so um, you know something where you really have to you know assess the patient, see what's going on, and then try to build some wraparound services around them. And if that's their only touch point, because I know sometimes people do use the ER as you know their primary care, or or um, they come in as a, a you know just a function of I'm um, having some symptoms. Um, if that's a touch point, that would be a great place to just provide whatever tools you can, whatever touch point you can have with them.
5: Melissa, um, another you were talking about some of the community events or mm-hmm. tragedies that we've uh, gone through that mm-hmm. you're know you've you very sensitive to because of your work and, mm-hmm. uh, and with the Buffalo Urban League. And, but the one I haven't had a lot of conversation or, or heard mm-hmm. a lot about was the, the, the Christmas blizzard we lost 47 people, um, <laughs> yeah. died during that blizzard. Uh, so right. it was a big event in that regard. Right. But what, how is that, you know, mm-hmm. how is that showing up? What are we seeing? What are we hearing from, from people and how that, that is impacting
2: them? Oh, well, again, the people lost a lot. People, like I said, sure. lives were lost. 47 lives were lost. Um, people had, uh, damage to their homes. They had damage to their cars. Uh, Damage for you know some people may have lost their jobs because they couldn't get to work. Uh, um, There's just been a lot of loss mm. and a lot of trauma behind, especially when you have so many tragedies that occurred and we did. You right. know quite a few. Um, like Covid. Back to may, back. Fourteenth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a beloved pediatrician. Uh, oh my. Um, There was a, just a lot of different things that occurred and some that may not even have made the news, you know, like COVID or something else. But a lot of different things that occurred and then to, for this to happen. And um, so I know, you know, New, Buffalo, it was Buffalo Hope at the time. Yeah, it was Buffalo Hope. But the Urban League itself responded um, by uh, we collaborated with a group um, and went door to door. Went door to door after the blizzard. After the blizzard. when they opened up the streets, of course, when they opened up the streets, <laughs> <laughs> up. wasn't they, easy getting around. <laughs> yeah, they opened up. You know, um, lifted the travel ban. We went door to door. So there were some individuals that were mowing and that were um, mowing, huh, mm-hmm. that were shoveling the snow. We were doing wellness checks, making sure people were, alive, and making sure like, what do you need? How can I help you? How are you feeling right now? Um, so the Buffalo League team was part of that. And um, and some people would be like, you know, I ran out of diapers. So we would go back. Our base was at Delavan Grider, I'd go back and report that, and then they would get them some diapers or get them wipes. I mean, it was a very, um, a very good collaboration. And then another thing that we did was um, provided uh, a family day for families hmm. around just different ways to cope. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a laughter therapy session. It was like all kind of fun stuff that was going on, and then there were tables that set up community members' ta- uh, community organizations' tables that set up to give information, um, just on various topics, um, mental health, housing, you know, just various things that community members could utilize. And then along with that, then we had like um, it was like a eleven person panel to talk about the you know the the mental health fallout of. Of um, Of you know the blizzard, Um, and it was it was amazing. It really was uh, because we were able to just like again impart some information to community members that maybe they didn't have before, and now you know I want to see. I'm 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 interested to see, like you know, our winter is coming back up. Yes, it is. (laughs) So I want to. I'm interested to see. You know, I'm going to be checking with my teams to see are people experiencing more anxiety because they're wondering like, is it going to happen again? Um, and are we prepared you know um, so you know just having those conversations and maybe helping them navigate that so yeah because we're coming up on the one year anniversary of that so. absolutely mm-hmm.
5: and I, I guess it goes without saying like we talked about the people that died but mm-hmm. um just the idea that what a sense of you know I don't horror is probably too strong a word maybe but that mm-hmm. blizzard was like for some people is that what we're we're hearing that just, you know, there was just this, it was it's cold, lot. you can't see out in front of your house. Yeah. What's going on next? Was that the, the root of a lot of this?
2: Yeah, and and not being able to have that control. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I know for me, we couldn't even get out the house. The snow was like halfway, to three quarters up. You couldn't get out the house. It was a concern of if somebody had a medical emergency, you know, well, how would that look? How would that play out? Um, and I think I even tried to shovel for a little bit. I think it was like that Friday and the wind was, it just, whew, it like whipped us up and then you couldn't see anything. And I was like, Oh, we, can, we have to go in the house. Cause if a tree branch was in that cloud, we wouldn't see it. And then next thing you know, we would be, you know, um, probably in some trouble. So, um, I think people just, uh, just wrapping themselves around that. Cause Buffalo, we are used to snow. Sure. And, uh, but this was different. This was even worse than the blizzard of 77. You know, I was told because then, I guess in 77, we didn't have the wind, which did the snow drifts and and all of that. So, um, yeah. So I think there's people are just like, just dealing with and the lack of control and the loss again, and just the trauma of it all. That's what people are probably dealing with. Yeah.
5: Um, moving on just a, a little bit, um. You're also involved in trying to set up a, um, I guess I'll use the term clinic uh, for lack of a better yes. term. I don't, I may not be the exact right word, mm-hmm. right on uh, Genesee Street in Hickory.
2: Genesee and Hickory. Yes. Um, it was is The
5: location, is that, is that strategic? Is that- a, 360 a Genesee.
2: Yeah. Well, my aunt is a pioneer. Um, I call her my mama, but she is a pioneer. She's been a psychiatrist for many years, and she started a program called the Census Foundation. And it was like a wraparound program to, for at risk youth and taught them everything from, and Census is an acronym, from like social skills, education, nutrition, um, you know, it was spirituality when it wasn't in the schools because you can't put that in the schools, but um, um, entrepreneurship and then social responsibility. Okay. And really, um, a really engaging program, really successful program. And um, but then COVID happened, so kind of you know you table a lot of things. But you know with all of our families, um, you know, um, healthcare, you know, um, careers, it was like, oh, well, what a we can do something different with that. So they started the process about two years ago, and it's called the Census Medical Wellness Center. Oh okay. Mm-hmm, right at three hundred and sixty Genesee, and uh, and so you know they started it, and you know she's a psychiatrist, so. And I'm I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and and you know, initially when you're I just graduated in twenty twenty one, so initially, for the first three thousand um, hours for a nurse practitioner, you have to have a um, I think it's called a collaborating physician, so you know it's like oh that that works well that you know we kind of let's try it and and see what see what happens so. You know, so she's, they did it, ran forward with, her, with it. And initially it'll be, be like a mental health focus, but, you know, we want to have mental and, um, you know, physical health because sometimes mental health patients, they, that might be their only contact. So if they can get a physical, get their immunizations, at the same time they're coming to get their counseling, whether it's on their own or court mandated, whatever, you know, that might be a, a, a good touch point that we can help people that maybe not, wouldn't get helped. Yeah, and, what, and what
5: about the the location? Is it is it intentional in the sense that that we're in a we're talking about an underserved absolutely area? Absolutely. It's interesting to hear you talking. You you because on one side you you know you've had this experience where you've been hands on RN, mm-hmm. National Guard. I mean all this, but mm-hmm. yet you seem also have this this big picture look at things as well with your work at Buffalo Urban League. Mm-hmm the census clinic hasn't opened yet hasn't started yet Mm-mm. so we don't know like you said what the community is going to need and where it's going to take us but do right. you have the sense that those types of targeted locations and, uh, are going to be a key to maybe you know mm-hmm. re- rejuvenating some of these neighborhoods that really could use use a boost
2: yes me investing in them, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> um, and showing them that you know somebody does care, somebody from the community is here that grew up in this community and know what it is, is coming back to kind of like you know give you that hands up, and, and hopefully, you can be in this space yourself to do the same, you know, in the future, absolutely,
0: yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. yeah. The big picture, um, I think it's because, um, I know that I've been blessed and i always tell people we're a banana slip away from being the people we serve i don't care how much money you have how many degrees you have we are all a banana slip from being the people that we serve so we really need to stay humble in that space um and try to do the best we can with the gifts that god gave us um so that we can help the next person because how many cars can you buy? How many? You know, it's like at some point for me, you know, I'm not speaking for anybody else. I have to have more purpose. And and I love the thought of helping someone look in the mirror or look at what I, you know, excuse me, life or the devil or whatever. That's keeping them from their greatness and say you're not going to win.
0: That was Jay Moran with the Buffalo Black Achiever Honoree and Chief Operating Officer of the Buffalo Urban League. Melissa Archer. We thank you for joining us. This has been Producers Picks. We would like to thank our guests Legarrett King, Donovan James, and Melissa Archer. If you missed anything and you'd like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast or the Amplified BTPM app. And each episode is also online on demand at wbfo.org. I'm Dallas Taylor. Thank you for listening.
6: This is the Buffalo, Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of November 27th through December 3rd. I'm your host and program director, Tom Barrich. November 27th, 1917, the TV host of the Howdy Doody Show was born on this day. Robert Emil Smith, also known as Buffalo Bob Smith, played the part ending his TV run in 1960, but continued with live performances, which evolved into, quote, adult-friendly versions of Buffalo Bob that had a more nostalgic theme to it. The University at Buffalo's men's basketball team played its very first game on December 1st, 1905. They played against Cornell at Convention Hall. They lost, unfortunately, with a valiant effort, and the final score, believe it or not, Cornell 27, UB 23. Games certainly have changed. And the famous and now legendary Pierce Arrow Motor Car Company incorporated on December 2nd, 1916. They had a good run and sold most of their assets at auction in 1938. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich.